Okay, would you please stand and turn to Philippians 1. We'll be starting in verse 12 and read through the rest of the chapter. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ, by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you am absent, or am absent, sorry, I may hear of your affairs, that you may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which are then a proof of prediction. But to you, of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Thank you, boys, for reading this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask if you will to join me and in, in let's, let's lift up this time here uh, to the Lord. Lord, you are the one who gives us reason to rejoice. We can have full-time joy, not because our lives are one big mountaintop experience, but because our lives are grounded and rooted in a relationship with your son, Jesus. It's through Christ we've received the gift of your promised Holy Spirit, and it's through the Spirit we are gifted with the access to joy. Lord, I pray that you would see that we are a people who rejoice in you always. When we encounter unfavorable circumstances here, I pray that we would set our affections upon Christ. When earthly trials endeavor to stall our effectiveness here, remind us that this is but for a time. Awaken in us the perspective of the scriptures. It speaks of our light affliction here is but for a moment. And it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, Lord, that we look at things which are not seen. Take our eyes off of the countless worthless things here. And set our eyes upon the eternal. The things that last the weightier matters of your kingdom. Open to us, Lord, this day what it is to be a citizen of heaven. Reveal what it is to live for Christ. And open for us the true greatness of dying in Christ. Grant us confidence in this life to know that whatever comes our way, whatever our lot, that we can magnify you, 
and give you glory with our lives. All we have, Lord, is yours. And we ask this day that you would have your own way in us. Teach us what you desire for us to know this morning from your holy word. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever been around someone who gets it? I'll give you a couple examples here up front. Maybe it's at your respective workplace. You know, someone that's your go-to person. They're competent on the job. But there's, but there's more to this person than simply competence. Competence that they know how to do their job. There's more to it than that with this person. He seems to do it well. He comes into the office every day, ready to work hard. He's prepared for the meeting. He's enthusiastic to interact with others. He's purposeful about carrying out the company's mission. He gets it. He knows why he's there. He understands how the business is supposed to work. And you've witnessed him interact with clients. You've seen him go about his work. And you've seen the attitude that shines forth when he sets to the task ahead of him. He's rarely in a bad mood. He seems to always have a smile on his face. He shows up on time for work every day. He's dependable, trustworthy. He's got all the intangibles to do the job well. And many watch him and think, that guy gets it. He gets it. You know, I was thinking about this in my own life, and I was thinking about how often I enjoy listening to sermons and, and reading books by other pastors. And, and there are some who have a spirit-fueled gifting with words. They're excellent communicators. They're masterful at ordering messages and books and driving home a biblical theme or a main idea and they present the message in a way that makes sense. It's clear. It's portable. In other words, it's a message that has the ability for other people who are listening. They can take it with them. It's memorable. It sticks. It's retainable to a large degree because of the heart behind the proclamation. And this person writes and speaks as though he really seems to know what I'm dealing with. And you finish one of his books and I come away thinking, he gets it. He gets it. And the same goes true and holds true for my role as, an, as a basketball official. I enjoy watching other basketball referees officiate. It's enjoyable for me to see how guys approach the game, how they approach their work, how they communicate with players and coaches, how they call the game, the mechanics and having proper signals, and how they interact with their partners, how they navigate through a trouble spot in the course of a game. Their demeanor on the court. Their love for the game shows up in how they go about their work on the court. Some of the best ones give a great effort every time out. They outwork the others. They're well prepared and they steward the opportunities that come their way. And so after watching some of those guys work, I come away thinking to myself, this guy gets it. He gets it. He knows what this is about. Unless you think that the workplace is the only venue or even the best venue to witness people who do their work well, I'd like to take this concept and apply it to our role as a follower of Jesus. Okay? Ever been around someone who, spiritually speaking, just seemed to get it? They make wise decisions on a consistent basis over a long period of time. They're disciplined in what they do. They have a passion and love for the Lord. They unashamedly carry their Bibles with them wherever they go. And they actually know what it says. They incorporate it into their conversations 
They, they have a joy-filled life that flows out of a vibrant relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. They always seem to have a ready answer to life's questions. They know what the Word says. And they're able to provide a word of encouragement, a prayer, or perhaps a note at just the right time. And you always leave their presence encouraged, uplifted, recharged, hope-filled. These people just seem to get it. And they operate, it seems, in close proximity to the truths established in God's word. I want you to know something this morning about this it factor. Spiritually speaking, there ought to be many more followers of Jesus who get it. Amen? There ought to be a whole lot more. Those who get it aren't reserved to the pastoral team or to the elders and deacons of a particular assembly. Each one of you in Christ is called to get it. Get it. Understand it. Have it in you. Have him in you. Have his power working through you. Do you get it? Listen, we talked last week about gospel motivation. When you are motivated to live according to the gospel, this leads to something. And I believe that's where this passage is taking us today. Gospel motivation leads us, it leads into, funnels into wise decision making. Is gospel motivation in you? That's sort of how we left last week. When the gospel is what moves you into action, you begin to see decision making in your life ramp up. Ramp up in terms of aligning with God's agenda. In other words, you begin to experience what it is to consistently make wise decisions. You'll make, let's put it this way, you'll make a whole lot more good decisions than bad ones. And the bad ones that do come, you'll be quick to repent, turn to God, long for his cleansing. The text today asks a life-altering question. One that has enormous stakes. One that if we get this wrong, or we fail to address it in our lives, we'll find ourselves like the man wandering from the way of understanding. You remember the proverb in 21, verse 16? The man who wanders from the way of understanding, the result of his life is that he will rest in the assembly of the dead. My heart's desire for each one of you this morning is that you get it. You get this. You get what God is saying in his word. Specifically about the issues of life and death that are spoken of. That you come to understand and show by your living that you get it. That you know why you're here. The question, the subtitle of the message is, do you get it? Subtitled, Making Sense of Why We're Here. (laughs) The one who gets it knows where he's going. And you know that deep down, you also want as many others to strive toward this heavenly prize along with you. So the big idea, living is Christ's. Dying is gain. I didn't make that up. It's in verse 21. That's really the centerpiece of this passage. Okay? But it's the big idea. We think about what's this all about. Let's just, let's just put it out there. It's living is Christ. Dying is gain. And, and one of the questions we'll deal with here in this text is, what is it to live and die? No small question this morning. 
This is a pretty big deal. What is it to live and what is it to die? The question is, is, is a large one. It, it, it has in mind the forest and not the trees. It's the big picture. It's not necessarily the fine details. The big picture, why we're here. What is it to live? What is it to die? Is it simply that one has a pulse and the other one does not have a pulse? Is that the main differentiator? Paul is about to, here in this text, he's about to open his life to us regarding the question of what it means to live and die. He provides for us his internal blueprint for dealing with life and death. He allows us to see, to take inventory, if you will, of his thought process as it pertains to life and death. We're able to view both sides of the question with great clarity. You see, reading this passage, we come away with what one writer described as Paul's inner deliberations of life and death. Reading this passage, we're instructed not only in how Paul handles these weighty issues of life and death, but the implication seems to be in the text that we too are to embrace these weighty decisions regarding life and death. We're called to operate in godliness with wisdom from above, just as Paul This is not just some picture and snapshot of of Paul and how he did it. But I believe it's an exhortation to all of us in Christ to consider and grab hold of this is how we live. This is how we die. You see, when you're a citizen of heaven, which we haven't gotten to yet in Philippians, we'll get there. Chapter 3. But when you're a citizen of heaven, your life here on earth is leveraged and maximized for Christ's sake, not your own. Decision-making factors in the gospel. We, we, we touched on that last week. It looks out for the interests of others. That's going to come in chapter 2. It operates from what I'll call the John the Baptist principle. You remember that in John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, I must what? Decrease. It's decision making with a purpose. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first. I hope you see from this passage That neither life nor death is deemed greater than or less than the other. The purpose of this text is not to raise one above the other as though one were good, the other bad. Paul puts life and death on the scales and he's weighing them according to Christ's standards. I was thinking this week as I was reading and doing some studying, uh, I came across a, a helpful picture in this regard in terms of the scales. And I was, I was envisioning uh, having this giant scale up here in the front. You know, one of those scales that has the, the long arm and has the, the arms on it and has the chain and has the little bowl, right? And you put stuff in it and... Picture that with me this morning as we're working through the text because I think in many ways that's what Paul is doing. He's putting... Life and death on the scales. And he's showing us the weightiness of both. They're on the scales. These are according to Christ's standards, life and death. And because they are set in the context of Christ's standards, both life and death... I believe Paul would want us to know this. Life and death have significant meaning for one who is following Jesus. 
In the end, I, I want you to pay careful attention to what tips the scales for Paul. And by extension, I believe the text is exhorting us to move in the same direction. To see for ourselves, by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, the proper handling and stewardship of both life and death. What is it to live? What is it to die? Well, look at verse 18. I think before we get into 19, I think it's appropriate. because, and In fact, some translations actually uh, just connect the two in one sentence. The New King James doesn't do this, but sometimes when we have a break in the action... Right? You, might, you probably have a break in the action between 18 and 19 in your Bible, I would imagine. There's some kind of uh, human header that's been inserted uh, before 19. And I just want to call your attention to the fact that 18 and 19 are very much connected. Remember in 18, he asked the question, what then? Or what really matters to me? There were people preaching from selfish ambition, not sincerely. They were supposing to add some affliction to Paul while he's already in prison. And there were others who were preaching Christ out of goodwill, out of love, knowing that he had been appointed for the gospel. And so he says in 18, what really matters then? He says, here's what matters. That in every way, whether in false motive, true motive, doesn't matter. Here's what matters. Christ is preached. And and in this, I rejoice. Present tense. Notice that Paul rejoices in the present, but seems almost on the fly, moved by the Spirit, to edit his statement right after he says it. It's not only present joy, but a progressive, ongoing joy. Notice he says, in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. I'm going to rejoice, not only in the present, but into the future. And I'm going to keep on rejoicing. That's the idea here. I'm going to keep on rejoicing. One writer said that Paul here is making a choice to rejoice. I like that. How about you? Do you make the choice to rejoice? He's making a choice. To keep on rejoicing. What is it that will sustain his rejoicing in the days ahead? How is it that Paul, a prisoner in house arrest, is able to hold fast to his rejoicing even while he's in chains? Look at verse 19. That's the explanation. For, that's an explanatory for. For, it's connected to I will keep on rejoicing for... I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. That this will turn out. You need to to be able to identify an answer to this. What's the this in verse 19? This will turn out. This will pan out. This will result in my deliverance. Now what's the deliverance that he's speaking of? Perhaps on the surface in a first read you might think that he's speaking about his deliverance from prison. His deliverance from his pending trial, being in Rome. His deliverance from, if you look at the word, you see that the word for deliverance is the same word we get for salvation, soteria. Surely Paul here isn't saying delivered from his sin. He's not thinking in that regard. Again, context tells us a lot. Is he speaking of deliverance from harm? Deliverance from suffering? Don't miss the connection between the future progressing, progressive rejoicing. I will rejoice. The connection between that and the certainty of his deliverance. He's going to keep on rejoicing due to the confidence he has in God. That's how he's going to keep on rejoicing. His confidence in God. You see, because 
what we've already come to see in Philippians is that God's started something in Paul's life. 1 verse 6, remember? And what God starts, he completes. He completes in his timetable. And so what God started in his life, Paul knows, that's the verse 19, I know there's a sense of certainty. What God started, Paul says, I know he'll be completing. And so ultimately, his deliverance is not determined, this is so important for us to get, his deliverance is not determined on whether his chains are removed or not. That's a pretty big deal to get. The confidence he has is not in his release from prison as much as it is in the God he serves. And context helps us as we keep reading. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through, by means of, what? Through, there's two things here I want you to see. Through your prayer, he says, and the supply or the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The prayers of the Philippian church, by the way, he has just recently prayed a prayer for the church, hasn't he? In verses 9 through 11. And now he's talking about what it is that ultimately is going to bring about his deliverance. He says, your prayer, the prayer of the church and the supply of the spirit. The prayer of the church and the supply of the spirit. Is there a connection, church, at all between your prayers and the supply of the spirit? You know, you think about and just turn, even in, in Ephesians chapter 6, remember the, the armor of God passage? You remember how he concludes that and talks about praying always in the Spirit? Seems there's a connection there, isn't there? Prayer, Holy Spirit. The prayers of others and the power, the mighty working power. There is power, power, wonder working power. We sang that song this morning. There's power in the blood of the Lamb. But, church, there's power in the Spirit who abides within us. And that Holy Spirit desires to use His people to accomplish His purposes for His glory. Well, Paul here seems to be relying on the prayers of the church. It's the source of his confidence. His deliverance is not based upon, this is important, his deliverance and confidence... It's not based upon self-help. Notice Paul is not advocating that he just has to work harder. He's just got to come up with, you know, the, the, the wily coyote. He has to go back to the drawing board and draw it up another plan. This one didn't work. I'm going to do this one. He's not, he's not drawing up a plan to break out of prison. His deliverance, he's confident in his God. That this will turn out for his deliverance through the prayers of the church and the power and the supply of the Holy Spirit. It's rooted in the prayer of the saints and the power of the Spirit. And friends, God has placed us together and connected us as a church for a relationship. He's placed brothers and sisters in your life to encourage you, to pray for you and with you. To weep with you, to rejoice with you. These are all things in the Bible. The one another's. The body of Christ is to be that collective voice of truth, pulling from the storehouse of God's word, interjecting life and hope to one another through the sure promises and precepts found in the scriptures. So his deliverance is through prayer. And the power of the Spirit, but it's also according to, right? Verse 20, according to, through, by means of, and deliverance according to. And here we get two things. According to, first of all, my earnest expectation. That word in the original language has in mind three separate words in our English language. Away, head, and turn. A preposition, a noun, and a verb for you grammar folks. And it has in mind this whole idea of 
setting my focus in a certain direction, not turning, looking at other interests, but straining my head and my focus in such a way that I am looking right here. This eager expectation. His deliverance comes to this eager expectation and hope. This isn't some whimsical hope like, I I hope I have ice cream tomorrow. This is hope as in the hope yet to come. We fix our eyes on this hope yet to come. This glorious hope that Christ is coming back. That kind of hope. A hope that's anchored in Christ. We keep reading in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing, in nothing. He's going to give us two ways to see this here. And he's going to start out seeing this from the negative, on the negative, And then he's going to shift to the positive. In nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, but, but with all boldness, as always, so now also... And we could put in brackets, so now also, um, even while I sit here in prison, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And it's right here at the end of verse 20 where he sets the stage for the scales. He set the scales, whether by life or by death. Nothing, he says, will cause him to be ashamed. Think about that for just a moment. Nothing. Not his prison sentence, his circumstance. Not his added affliction by others who desire to wrong him. He's not feeling guilty. He's not desiring harm to come to those who speak against him. Paul has gospel motives and is no longer ashamed of his circumstance. He's not looking primarily for a quick exit from prison. He's most concerned, church. Here's a a good application. Here's a lesson for us, a principle. He's most concerned about magnifying Christ in his body. Whether by life or by death. Either one. Now what's interesting to me as I read is that Paul captures the full scope of our lives when he submits that line, whether by life or by death. Think about it. Is there another option available to us than life or death? That about covers it all, doesn't it? And Paul is saying to us, choose to honor, choose to exalt. When he says he's going to magnify, another couple words that, that we could put in there for magnify would be honor or exalt. Choose to exalt Christ in your body, whether by your living or in your dying. In other words, make all of your days count for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Make all your days count. We don't know, we're not guaranteed another day, are we? Not a one of us know how many days we have. And yet, how often do we in the body... Dishonor the Lord, profane the Lord by our words, by our deeds, by the deeds we leave out, by our thoughts, by our motives. How often do you consider your vessel to be God's and therefore you make every effort to steward it to the glory and honor of God. 
After all, the Bible does say that your body is a dwelling place, right? It's a, it's a temple wherein resides the person of the Holy Spirit. What are we taking into this temple and how are we stewarding this temple of God? Paul says that whether life or death, in the body, I'm going to magnify Christ. Are we seeing that our living in the present and our dying in the future at some point? Are we seeing that they're comprised under the banner of exalting the name of Jesus? Is there a a pursuit in the present and a confidence of what's to come when you die? Do these things together cause you to lay aside the things that hinder, the things that slow you down in this race of faith? To realize that the prize is the pursuit of our Lord Jesus. He's our prize. He's the one we glorify. He's the one we magnify. James says it this way about our tongue. How is it that we can speak, we'll just say, Christianese on Sunday, and Monday through Saturday we speak a whole lot like the world? Brothers, this ought not be, he says. That's one example of a whole slew of examples we could come up with in terms of living with this one. We talked about this a long time ago, but it came to my attention as I was looking at this. That one holy passion, right? That, that one pursuit. I would want you to know, and I believe Paul, through, through the word this morning, would want us all to know that Jesus Christ is worth living and dying for. He's worth it. And Paul, at the end of verse 20, he's saying, look, things aren't changing because I find myself in prison. Just as I've always operated in Christ... So even now, in my prison circumstance, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether that means in my life or whether that leads to my death. One way or the other, Christ will be magnified. Make no mistake about it. I believe Paul would want that to be very clearly spoken. I was thinking about that phrase, in the body, in my body. And I was reminded of the passage at the end of Galatians in 6.17 where Paul says, from now on, let no one trouble me. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I bear in my body. In the book of 2 Corinthians, it gives us that whole list of things that Paul had gone through in his life. Wow. I read that and I just shake my head and go, the amount of stuff he went through for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Or Paul even says, uh, also to the church at Corinth, he says, and speaking of judgment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, talking about present in the body or absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? Remember that passage? That's that's the context. He's talking about judgment to come. He says the the whole aim is is that we're to be well-pleasing to him. For, here's the reason, for an explanation. For we must all appear, all appear, every single one of us, no one's exempt from this, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we can parse in detail how many judgments are there. let's Let's just boil it down. Let's just say this. All of us are going to be judged, every single one of us. And here, Paul's saying, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done where? In the body. What are we doing in the body? What are you doing right now in the body? I want you to see something this morning that this life that you have in the body, there's going to be a judgment. And according to what Paul says here, each one, we all must appear before the judgment seat, that each one, we're we're going to be held accountable while in this body. According to what he's done, whether good or bad, 
And so Paul, understanding this, he says, knowing, therefore, the terror or the judgment of the Lord. By the way, it is sheer terror for those who don't get this. To know that we're going to be judged as a believer in Christ, friends, it's not quite so frightening when we know our confidence and we know our, our certainty and our assurance of salvation. But, but it is quite frightening and terror for those who don't get this, what we're talking about in regard to life and death. Paul says, because of this judgment, we persuade men. And, and friends, that's what we ought to be about too. Persuading men. See, if, if you get this, why aren't you persuading men? This is what it's about. This is big. Life and death. These are big issues. And this is Paul's life. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. His heart's desire is to see men saved. Specifically, even his own Jewish countrymen, right? My heart's desire is that my own countrymen would be saved. They have a zeal, but it's not a zeal with a right understanding. His desire is to see them come to know the Lord Jesus and to spend their days living for the one who rescued them and called them out of darkness. And Paul explains what he says in verse 20. And he sets into the motion here this inner deliberations with his familiar line. I believe in the whole book of Philippians, right here in Philippians 1.21, this is probably, I'm going to put forward, this is probably one of, if not the, most familiar verses in the whole book. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Gains. Short verse, powerful verse. So in answer to the question, how am I to magnify Christ in my life or in my death? Paul responds with this startling, heart-wrenching, mind-alterating statement. The original language actually begins with, to me. To me. He wants the church to know. To me. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Does this not explain, at least in part, when we read the book of Acts? And right before he goes to Jerusalem, and he's, he's meeting with some of the believers, and he finds out, remember, Agabus ties him up, and he's going to go through this, this suffering and, and, and chains. He's going to be chained, and the Holy Spirit testifies that in every city, uh, persecutions and troubles await me. And they're, they're weeping and crying. And Paul's like, why are you crying? Why are you crying? This is what I've been appointed for. The, the, the defense of the gospel. And the gospel church includes living. It includes dying. Well, for Jesus. Paul got this. He says, you want to know how I can keep rejoicing on into the future? I'm confident in the God who began a good work in me. I'm confident in the God who will complete his work in me. To live, therefore, is to do so unto Christ, my Lord and Master. To die is to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Dying is gain, says Paul. Wow! Let me ask you, do you see dying as gain? Right now, as you sit here this morning, can you say that dying is gain for you? Do you see that as gain? The word has in mind something advantageous. I believe we need to unearth this concept of dying. I don't think many of us are, are two feet in with Paul on this idea about dying. One writer says that most people want to go to heaven. Amen? Most people want to go to heaven. They just don't want to die to get there. 
Huh? Does that speak to you a little bit of where you're at? You like the idea of heaven. But can we do this, God, without dying? Can we do it Enoch fashion? Can we do it Elijah style? Sinclair Ferguson speaks of this advantage, this gain in dying. He says the gain, of course, speaks or lies in the fact that Paul, his death will usher him into the presence of Christ. He will be with Christ for that is better. That's what verse 23 tells us. But he says the future, this is so important, but the future experience, well, the prospects of being with Jesus in heaven or this ongoing rejoicing that Paul's already talked about, the future experience gives him joy only because in the present, Christ means everything to him. To live as Christ. Jack Graham in his book on Philippians, he says, one of the ironies of the Christian life is that you have to die in order to live. You have to die in order to live. Wasn't that part of God's redemptive plan? Sending his son? Isn't that what the Bible tells us? That he was manifested to take away our sins? That he himself became our substitute. He died in our place. Took our sin upon himself. Became that perfect spotless lamb of God. So rejoicing in Christ, rejoicing that Christ is preached. Paul is rejoicing in the present, but his rejoicing has a future bent to it as well. And notice he incorporates his dying with his living. Both are significant. Both are needful to take inventory of. Both provide opportunities to magnify the Lord, to exalt his name. So it's in the midst of this life and death spectrum that Paul continues his thought process in the text. Now, if you have your Bible open, uh, I'm going to read these few verses because we're going to fill in some blanks here on what living is and what dying is according to what Paul tells us here in the text. Okay, follow with me in verse 22. This is right after he says, and to die is gain. He says, but if I live on in the flesh, that's a conditional statement, right? If I live on, He doesn't know for certain if he's going to live on here long term. If I live on, this, and by the way, the flesh is used a lot of different ways in the scripture. Right here, it's the external, right? The body, okay? The outward body. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit. We talked about some fruit last week, didn't we? This will mean fruit from my labor. Yet, what shall I choose? I believe there's a question mark there. In the original, there's a question mark right there. What shall I choose? And to answer his own question, he says, I do not know. Hmm. I cannot tell. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart And be with Christ, which is far better. You know, in the margin of the Bible right here, I just put, amen. It is. It's far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So, if we're to to look at this scale here for just a moment, kind of picture this scale in your mind. And we're going we're gonna to put some, uh, some items in both sides of the scale here, according to the text. First of all, from verse 21, we see uh, living is Christ, right? And the same thing here, we see dying is what? Gain, right? It's advantageous. Living is Christ, dying is gain. 
Elsewhere in these verses that I just read, what we also see is that living is to remain. To remain. Dying is to depart. Living, we see not only the idea of of it being Christ and not only remaining, but we see living for Paul is labor that is what? How's it described? Fruitful. Labor that is fruitful. If I'm to go on living, means I'm going to be laboring. I'm going to be working for what end? For what purpose? To bear fruit for the kingdom. Continue preaching the gospel. Dying is to be with Jesus. And then we get to this last one here on the, on the line. I mean, and this is, this is really uh, how he kind of uses a springboard to finish the text in 25 and 26, what we have before us. But we see that with living and what this represents, again, thinking about this in terms of, of the scale. And, and again, he's not pointing out here that, that living is superior to dying or that dying is superior to living. That one's bad, one's wicked. That's not his point. He's he's laying before us his thought process here in regard to living and dying. What matters? But what we're going to see here in the text is that there's this last item is going to be the item really that essentially tips the scale in a certain favor, in a certain direction. And in the tipping of the scale, I want you to notice, it's the tipping of the scale then that leads Paul forward in making a decision. This is really important. But one writer talked about how this text, really in many regards, helps us weigh our decision making. We think about these two big ideas of living and dying. So we think about this idea of dying for just a moment. It's, it, he says in the text, if you look in your Bible, he says... I'm hard-pressed between the two, verse 23, having a desire to depart, to depart and be with Jesus, which is, this is, this is important for us to get. I think he's contrasting here. I'll underline my. My desire, dying is Paul's desire. My desire, why? He says it's far In fact, we could translate it far, far better. It's far better. Over here, living is more needful for you. You see the contrast here? Paul says, my desire, my desire, dying, depart, be with Christ. This is my desire is to to be with Christ. It's far better. And then he says in the text in 24, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. More needful for you. What's this tell us about Paul, church? It's not about him, is it? How often in our lives do we make our decisions based upon what we want? What we want in the flesh. What I desire and how I might gratify My flesh. One writer was talking about how we can actually participate and do things that would maybe be deemed non-sinful ways. (laughs) 
And yet, we need to understand and recognize that there may very well be a better choice. Paul's desire was to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But he says, nevertheless, reminds me of what Jesus said in the garden. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Think there's anything good in here for us in terms of how we go about making our decisions? How we go about stewarding the life that we do have now in the present? And he's going to get to this in a few verses in chapter 2 about thinking of the interests of others, right? Chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests. It's good to look out for your own interests. Take care of yourself. Take care of your families. Those are all good biblical things. But he's going to say, you need to also be looking out for the interests of others. Because you know what? These other people are going to encounter the same two issues in their life that you are. And one of your roles and one of my roles in our living is to see that this gospel truth gets forwarded so that others can get it. It's important for us to understand from the text that the advantage in dying, the gain in dying, is only truly a gain when it is appropriated to those who place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. Dying is no gain. To one who is not in Christ Jesus. Dying is a tragedy. How many of you have been to a funeral? You've been to a funeral where the person who has passed on did not know the Lord. And perhaps the people who have gathered on that day of the funeral also don't know the Lord. It is gloomy, dark, hopeless. But I believe the Bible would tell us that dying can be gain and is gain when you, I'll use the two terms in the Bible, when you believe and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Great hope can be a celebration. Think about the tragedy of so many lives today, wandering at sea, aimless, no real direction, no real purpose, They've been offered, listen, they've been offered the advantage that Paul speaks of in the text, the gain that death brings, but have yet to believe and receive in Jesus. Well, he concludes as he's talking about the importance, uh, by the way, that desire that he talks about in 23, his desire to depart. Uh, that word desire is a word that in many contexts in the New Testament has in mind, um, uh, has a negative connotation. Uh, the, the word is uh, a word that actually means in many instances in the New Testament, uh, lust, a strong passion. Here it's actually rendered in a good, positive way. But the, the, it, it's, it's a word with great intensity. His strong desire, it's the same word that we would find in, in Jesus in his words in the Lord's Supper, this fervent desire. Remember that when Jesus is in the upper room? That's with fervent desire he shared the Passover with them. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Listen to what he says in closing. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue. I shall remain, I'll abide and continue with you all. I'm going to continue coming alongside of you all 
Now, obviously, he's in prison. He can't physically be there alongside of them. But where he goes with this in 26 is that his hope is that one day he will be able to come alongside of them and continue his gospel ministry with them. Why? For what purpose? For your progress. By the way, that's the same word that we saw in verse 12. For furtherance or advancement. For your advancement, for your furtherance, and joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me, Paul says, may be more abundant in Jesus Christ. That your rejoicing for me, uh, one rendering would be, um, so that your boasting in Christ would be more abundant because I'm now able to come back to you again. The word he uses for come here in the text, my coming to you, it's the same word that's used in the scripture for the Lord coming back for his church. The same word that's used for the Lord coming back his second time. It's coming back. He's hopeful that he'll get to come back and minister alongside of them. If he's going to remain in the flesh, this is going to mean fruitful labor. This is going to mean continuing in his preaching and teaching of the church at Philippi. He sees this as more needful. And he's convinced that this, for right now, this is what it is. This is where he's going. So what is it that tips the scales for Paul's decision making? It's not quantity of evidence. It's not like there's more evidence on one side than the other side that he's presenting. It's not that. It's simply the weight of evidence. Something for Paul is more weightier on the scale of importance, isn't it? Remaining, Paul is intentional about continuing with the church for their progress and joy of faith. Paul gets it. He gets what living is about. He gets life and he gets death. Church, we would do a disservice if we didn't ask the question this morning. Do you get it? And there are some here that we might ask, will you ever get it? Will you ever get it? And what I mean by that is, you have heard and you've heard and you've heard the truth of the gospel. And you have refused. You have refused. You have refused. I can't even say it. I said it three times. You've just declined it. Will you get it? The only way you'll truly ever get what we're talking about here? Surrendering your will to his. The Bible calls it repent. Repent. It's saying you're sorry to God, understanding that that your sin has, has grieved him deeply. See, he's a holy God. And it's your sin that has separated you from God. And the Bible calls us to repent of our sin. To confess with our mouth and believe in our heart the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says doing that, Chris talked about earlier this morning, about the simplicity. This is the simplicity of the message. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. He died, he was buried, three days later he was raised. That's the core of the gospel. Do you get it? Will you live for it? Are you willing to die for it? I love those lyrics to the last few lines of the hymn. Speaking about Christ having his own way in us. Christ only always living in me. Living is Christ, dying is gain. I hope this morning from the passage that we've covered, you've been able to see and hear some answers to this question. What is it to live? What is it to die? And you've been able to see on the scales of what Paul puts and submits for us in in the word here. What is it that tips the balance of the scale? 
in terms of his decision making, in terms of now his action steps, his thoughts, where he's headed, in what direction. And keep in mind, that direction that he's headed is always subject to change. Always has an asterisk by it. Because it is possible that when the Lord changes things, and this is, the, this is the, it's so evident in the scripture with Paul's life. We see it on his missionary journeys. He's going to go into Asia, and God says to the Spirit, no, you're not. You don't see Paul arguing. Paul goes. Where he leads me, I will follow. Do you get it? I pray you do. I pray we all do. For the Lord's sake. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to be the people you've called us to be. You've called us new creations in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. May the church look new. May there be life. And the life that Paul's talking about from this passage is not simply breathing and having a pulse. But it's life that is grounded and rooted and absorbed and enveloped in a great love for you through your son Jesus. A love that just compels him. It drives him forward to share about Christ. He can do no other than, than to preach Christ. Father, I pray that we would be able to see in Paul an example, an example that would move us into action, an example that would be a reminder to us that, that these words are not simply spoken for Paul's benefit and, and for us to just see and get a snapshot of Paul's life, but Lord, they're here to exhort us your church, to get it, to understand it, to grab a hold of it, to be able to put our living in a proper and right perspective, to put our dying in a right perspective, and to see dying as gain. And I pray the church here would see dying is advantageous. It is far better. It's wonderful because we get to be with Jesus. But in the meantime, May our lives be lived bearing fruit, laboring for the kingdom. Let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun. Let's talk of all his wondrous love and care. And when all of life is over and our work on earth is done, when the roll is called up yonder, Lord, I pray every single one of us will be there. I pray, Lord, that this church gets it for your honor for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.